Mark chapter 8 is our text this morning. Marking the halfway point here in our chapter by chapter study through this gospel. 38 verses, so let's get into it. It says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some have come, uh, some of them excuse me, have come from very afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set, before, and they set them before the multitude. He also had a few small fish, having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away immediately, got into the boat with his disciples, came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. <clears throat> now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? He said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it that you don't understand? Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. He looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the, uh, to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men." When he had called the disciples to himself, with the, uh, excuse me, when he had called the people to himself with the disciples also, he said to them, "Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul?" For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the overall theme of this chapter is that the people around Jesus just weren't getting it. A lot of instances there. Of course, we do see the Pharisees there in verses 11 and 12. They come out and they find Jesus and then they're disputing with him and they demand a sign. That's certainly something that we can tend to do to God, demand that he prove himself over and over and over again. Uh, It's a technique we'll use sometimes when we don't want to deal with the correction or the leading that the Lord has given us. You know, the Lord speaks something to us and we say, well, prove yourself and then prove yourself again and prove yourself again. You know, it's kind of a, a straw man technique that we use. But this text doesn't spend much time with the Pharisees, so we're not going to either. They were, of course, you know, legalists who hated the Lord. And this interaction we see in the middle of the chapter is just business as usual for them, and we've talked about that already. Uh, Instead, the great bulk of the text is Jesus interacting with his disciples, who also weren't getting it, unfortunately. Uh, So much so that Jesus eventually says to them there in verses 17 and 18, Do you not... Uh, Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then down in verse 21, he says, So he said to them, How is it that you don't understand? Uh, Jesus posed this question to them because he spoke openly to them. He taught in the open. He shared about the future openly, like we saw in verse 32. He healed and worked miracles in the open. He specifically called these 12 disciples and told them that he intended to do a work through their lives and he modeled how that was supposed to happen and gave them all these opportunities and all this equipping and all this empowering. Yet throughout this chapter, we see that they just weren't getting it. Now we're halfway through the book and these guys have been spending a lot of time with the Lord and hearing from him every day and seeing him doing all this stuff and he's filling them up and doing all this crazy stuff and they just just weren't grabbing hold of it. They weren't getting it and... uh, you see some frustration there, or you see some disappointment there in the Lord's words. And I think we tend to spend a lot of time in this life confused if we're not careful. And it's kind of a, you know, a characteristic that sometimes we as Christians get trapped into. We get confused about our circumstances and our calling and our choices, uh, but it's not the Lord's fault. I mean, we get sometimes trapped up and tripped up in a way that the Lord doesn't intend. Uh, Because God is on record as the God of wisdom and the God of understanding. He is the God of clarity and leading and revelation. That's who he is as revealed in the Bible. And if we are frustrated or if we're confused in the way that we see the disciples being here, then we're just not getting it in the same way that they weren't getting it. And that's not what Jesus wants for us. Because what we see in how Jesus talked to them that he desperately wanted them to understand and to move forward in their discipleship. He wasn't trying to keep these guys from really grabbing hold of what he was all about and what life was all about. And so if we look into the text, we get at least one reason why the 12 weren't understanding. We already read it twice. It's there in verse 17. Jesus said, do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? And if you pair up that statement, that kind of diagnosis that Jesus made, uh, for them, If you pair that up with the things the disciples said and did in each of these little um, passages within the chapter, you find that the hardness of their hearts was often related to their own self-centeredness. In fact, the chapter closes with Jesus talking all about how to overcome self-centeredness and how to really take on our Christianity. He says you do that by laying down your life and being surrendered to the control of God, not focusing on manipulating your own life or saving your own life. He says, no, you need to jettison control of your life and focus on godly things. 
self-centeredness is something we all have hardwired within our old nature. That's just the deal. And it causes a hardening of the heart when it comes to the things of God. That's what Jesus rebuked Peter specifically for uh, in verse 33. He said, you are focused on yourself. You are focused on man things and human things instead of the things of God. That's where their disconnect was, at least in this chapter. So if we look at a couple of quick examples in our text, we can see what we can see here. First, we have the feeding of the 4,000. Now, to me, as we've gone through this book, just chapter by chapter, this episode is really pretty amazing because this exact same scenario had just happened two chapters ago. The exact same thing had just happened. And you'd hope that the disciples would have grabbed, grabbed hold of what was about to happen, and, and they didn't. The first time, in fact, the crowd that they were with was even larger, and their resources were even smaller. There were 5,000 men in their families, and they had five loaves and two fish. Now there were 4,000 men with their families, and they had seven loaves and a few fish, it says. But it seems that the disciples hadn't really learned anything from the first time around. <clears throat> Remember, back then, two chapters ago, they weren't interested in ministering to the people. They wanted someone else to do it. They didn't want to be inconvenienced, and the same thing was happening here. They weren't really interested in dealing with the needs of the multitude, and so they effectively forgot the power of God that was in their midst. They forgot who they were dealing with, or they just kind of ignored the fact that Jesus had the ability um, to take care of this issue, and that he was inviting them to be a part of dealing with uh, this need. Mark 8, 4, they said, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And you look at that, you think, really, how, are, how is it possible that you're saying this to Jesus, who literally just took care of a situation exactly like this, you know, two chapters ago for us, and, and they just weren't getting it. It, it was self-centeredness. They didn't want to deal. They didn't want to engage. They didn't want to interact. They didn't want to serve. And self-centeredness caused them to forget what Jesus was capable of. You know, so whether it was out of laziness or annoyance or some sort of prejudice, they just weren't interested in serving these people. And just like the first time with the 5,000, Jesus is there waiting for his disciples and talking to them, and he wants them to get involved in this incredible miracle. You know, Jesus, you know did all he could with these 12 guys to not just be a one-man show. He's like, hey, why don't you give them something to eat? Why don't you work this out? Hey, why don't you go into the town to minister? And so, you know, it's really a sad thing in one sense because the Lord is there wanting to get them involved in, in this work and in this miracle, but they weren't thinking about ministry. They weren't thinking about the potential of God's power for this need and for this situation. They, in that moment, would have been content to just send people away, weak and hungry, so that they didn't have to be inconvenienced, or they didn't have to take a step of faith. And really, you know, we think about the Christian life being a, a life of faith, and it is, but really, I mean, look at it here. It wouldn't have been that great a leap of faith. They had already seen Jesus do this exact same thing just a short time ago, and so would it really have been that great a leap of faith to come to Jesus and say, hey, there's 4,000 guys the, and his family's there, and we even have more loaves of fish. Can we multiply this again? But they didn't have the correct spiritual vision because they were focused on themselves. And we do this too. We get focused on self. And when that happens, all the needs of others seem unimportant. Or at least they seem less important than our own comfort or our own schedule or our own mindset or just us. Just you and your stuff is less important to me than me and my stuff. And all the time, Jesus is excited to give us ministry opportunities. He's excited to use us to change the lives of others. But he says, you need to love others the same way that you love yourselves. 
but a hard, self-oriented heart gets callous to other people and their needs and tends to forget the potential of God's power. So if we're never moved with compassion to serve someone or to reach out to them or help in suffering or, or, or something like that, then there's a good chance that we're spending our time focused on self rather than seeing the opportunities God is bringing to us for ministry. Or on the other hand, we sometimes forget that our God is a God of provision. He's already done a work of salvation and provision in our lives. And so a lot of times we'll get wrapped up in a specific need or a struggle and, and we doubt that the Lord can really do anything about it. You know, we may, might not actually say that or we might not actually think those words. The Lord can't do anything about that. But in our worry and in our, uh, in our concern, we start thinking, man, what, what's God going to do? You know, I don't know if I can be saved from this problem or from this situation. I, I wish the Lord would deliver me, but I don't know if he's going to. Um, but we need to remember that our Lord has already, he's the God who's already saved us from hell's fire. I mean, he's already provided us with many things like his spirit and his word and his gifting. I mean, that's his business, being a savior and a provider. He, he, now, we might think, you know, that the Lord should provide a specific meal. Let's use this analogy here. You know, the people there in the wilderness might have thought, we want lamb and soup tonight. And Jesus said, no, you're getting bread and fish. That's what you're getting tonight. <laughs> but the point is, our God is a, a saving provider. I mean, he, that's, that's what he is about. And, and he is our ongoing savior, and he's our ongoing provider for willing to trust in him and his provision. Now, something else we see the self-centered heart doing is making everything about the physical world rather than the spiritual world. We see it in verses 13 through 21. Jesus is there in the boat, and he's, and he's taking an everyday opportunity to teach his guys something spiritual. He says, hey, I want to teach you something about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But they are all wrapped up in themselves, and they assume that he's talking about them not bringing enough you know, food on the boat, not enough bread on the boat. And the Lord shows them that these everyday things he's been doing and these miracles and these teachings, all this stuff he's been saying and all the stuff that they've seen, they're meant to teach them spiritual truths as they go about their lives. And that's something that you know, we just really need to grab hold of as Christians, the fact that God speaks spiritual things to us through our everyday lives, our everyday circumstances and interactions. But if we're wrapped up in self and always thinking about you know, my physical needs or my physical circumstances, then we're not going to be making a lot of spiritual progress because when God is trying to teach us something about discipleship, we're only seeing what groceries we forgot at the store. And, and that's, that's, that's what we're seeing here. Uh, our interactions and our thoughts and our daily situations are meant to be spiritual classrooms where God speaks to us and brings us wisdom and understanding. And if we just set out the mindset that, man, the Lord wants to teach me something today, and if we're sensitive to that and not thinking so much about our physical desires or our physical whatever, then we're going to see that life is essentially spiritual. Then you have this famous episode with Peter. Uh, in one instance, you have Peter stating that Jesus is the Christ, and the next, he's actually rebuking Jesus and then being rebuked by Jesus. And again, it's all with this backdrop of the Lord just trying to teach his guys something, trying to bring them along in their discipleship and, and show them what he's all about. But Peter just doesn't want to hear it. Uh, he doesn't want to hear it at all there at the end of the chapter. When Jesus talks about suffering and dying and rising again, Peter decides that that's not the kind of Messiah that he wants. And so he shuts down. That wasn't very palatable in his opinion. Uh, you know, he was happy to be the Messiah's disciple, but he had already decided what kind of Messiah he needed to be. 
And we do this, you know, it's like, well, Lord, I'm ready to follow you, and I'm going to follow you to the destination that I want to go to. And if you want me to go to another destination, I'm going to kind of rebuke you in my heart and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's kind of a different way of being Jonah. Jonah just said, hey, I'm not doing that, just ran the other way. But sometimes we say, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, and you're going to go over there where things are physically better for me and physically more comfortable for me and physically wealthier for me. And, uh, you know, he had already decided what kind of Messiah the Lord needed to be. And because Peter had his own agenda, he had his own thoughts about what would be best for his future and God's people and all of that. So after all of these events and after the disciples were just missing all of these opportunities that the Lord was bringing them and missing the spiritual things he was trying to develop in them, Jesus finally lays out this incredible set of statements for them and for us in verses 34 through 38. Let's read them again and just take them to heart. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So that's discipleship. That, that's the deal. That's spirituality. But when we get self-centered and self-oriented, we can't get this. We can't understand this. We can't grab hold of what Jesus is talking about. Um, because the self-centered Christian doesn't want to serve other people. He wants to serve self. He doesn't want to see life as essentially spiritual. He's focused on his physical desires and his physical urges. He doesn't want to take the correction that the Lord brings to his life. He just wants to make things more comfortable for himself. And that's why a self-centered Christian can't really walk the disciple road. Because Jesus says, hey, discipleship is the opposite of self and self-orientation. And so in one sense, the self-centered Christian is kind of like the blind man in verse 24. What does Jesus say in the boat? He says, do you guys have eyes but you can't see? And then we have this great story about Jesus healing this blind man. It's an unusual story. And, and to me, what happens is, you know, we can as Christians be like this blind man in verse 24. We, we have this amazing interaction with the Savior where he's laid his hands on us. He's taken us out of the city and he says, hey, I'm going to do something with you. And he lays his hands on him and, and there in verse 24... But his vision isn't quite right. I mean, his vision is all blurry. He says, I see men like trees walking. And then he had partial vision. And so he was partially transformed. And the Lord goes back and does another touch on his eyes. Now, if at verse 24, the blind man would have said, hey, I see men like trees walking, so thanks. I'm going to go stumble around. I'm, I'm so happy to see blurry stuff all over. <laughs> I don't really need to see anything else because this is a 50% improvement for you know, wherever I was. We would see that as a failure. I mean, we'd laugh at that like we just did. And, and we'd think, man, yeah, completely blurred vision is not better than blindness. It's not. Sight is better than blindness, not half sight. And so we would have been sad for it. But when it comes to spiritual vision, a lot of Christians get caught in verse 24. The, the Savior has touched their, our lives, uh, but then we resist him coming in and laying his hands on us again to complete that work that he started, that work of transformation. We choose not to take up a cross because we allow ourselves to be self-centered and obsessed with comfort and wealth and control of our own lives. That's the issue. 
But a self-centered Christian is really of little use. It's as, just as much little use as this blind man having completely blurred vision where he thinks people look like trees. Because a, a self-centered Christian is not effectively transformed. He's not picking up on opportunities to serve others. He's not picking up on the truths that the Lord is trying to impart to him in daily life. He's not understanding who Jesus is and what his plan is for the world. He doesn't see what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. And so clarity and usefulness and understanding come to us when we're willing to let the Lord put his hands on us and on our hearts again and again to conform us and sanctify us and complete the transformation that he has begun. Those good things come when we stop focusing on ourselves and choose to acknowledge who God is and what he's capable of and where he's called us to. And God wants us to get it. Jesus wants us to get it. He, he's doing this stuff in the open for us. There's a big, incredible life waiting for us as God's people out there. It's a life that the Lord can't wait to give to us. But if we want it, we've got to get our heads out of ourselves and onto Jesus. We've got to buy into the fact that life is essentially spiritual, that our Savior is extending to us clarity and calling and completion. But he's got to lay his hands on us again and again and again to finish that transformation until we finally see him face to face in heaven. Amen.